You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 6. And let's pray together before we begin. Father, it is to your word that we turn because we, we know that we cannot know you savingly apart from your word. We must and cannot be sanctified apart from your word. And it is to your word that you call us to turn in order to know you and to know you savingly and to be sanctified by your truth. And as your people, it is our desire that we would be sanctified by your truth, that you would glorify yourself through the preaching of your word and As our hearts are bent toward it, we pray, O Spirit of God, that you would be our teacher and that our hearts would be open to obey you. Sanctify us together, we pray, and give us understanding in some very difficult things. For Christ's sake and in his name, amen. The the end and goal of all Christian preaching and teaching from the Word of God is obedience. It is the same whether your audience is that of believers like we have here this morning, mostly if not all of you believers, or whether you have an audience of unbelievers, the goal of all Christian preaching and teaching is belief. And by belief, ultimately to end up in a life of obedience. When in a situation like this where the audience is mostly believers, the goal of anybody who stands behind a pulpit and preaches or teaches in Sunday school or in a church service is that in the hearts and minds of all who hear, all believers, that Christ might be exalted and that your faith and your belief might be increased and strengthened, and that the eyes of all God's people might return continually again and again to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that not only would we believe, but that we might be strengthened in our belief and encouraged in our belief, and that our hearts might be built up in the most holy faith, and that we might be strengthened in that faith, and that as a result of our faith and our belief, that we would obey. And so Christian preaching to believers is really designed to hammer out all of the implications of what belief means so that 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 word of God which comes to us might be united with faith and by our faith we might live a holy and obedient life. That's the goal of Christian preaching, obedience and belief in the hearts of believers. In the case of unbelievers, the goal of Christian preaching is belief, just like with believers. With unbelievers, it is belief as we seek to lay out the implications of belief and the horrors of unbelief and the consequences and causes of unbelief in order that the heart of the unbeliever might be turned toward Christ in the hopes and goal that their eyes would be opened and that they would behold the Son and that they would believe upon the Son and they would entrust themselves to the Son and in by belief in the Son of God have life. So the goal of all Christian preaching, whether to believers or unbelievers, is belief. It was the same with the Lord Jesus, and we've seen this in John chapter 6, as we return again and again to the theme of belief. That seems to be the application. It certainly is all the way through the Gospel of John, but particularly in chapter 6, as Jesus is dealing with a crowd of unbelievers, and he is imploring with them and offering them salvation if they would believe. But we've seen that the condition of their heart was such that they did not believe. They didn't want to believe. In John 6:44, they couldn't believe. They couldn't believe because they didn't have the desire to believe. They were unable because they lacked the will to believe. So these are people who were in unbelief, 
And Jesus is preaching and teaching to them, demonstrating who He is in order to turn their hearts toward Him. That is the, that is the aim and the goal of Christian preaching. To turn the heart of the unbeliever that the unbeliever would respond with belief. I don't know if you've ever thought of this or not, but unbelief is one of the most wicked of sins. Unbelief is one of the most wicked of sins. Whether it is committed by an unbeliever or whether it is committed by a believer who simply doesn't believe. And by a believer who doesn't believe, I mean a believer who actually acts like an unbeliever or walks in disobedience. See, any act of righteousness or or any lack of righteousness or any act of sin on my part or your part is at essence an act of unbelief. My sin is caused when I say to myself in my heart about God, I do not believe that what God has said is true. And I act in rebellion to what God says is true. That is an act of unbelief. Though I may confess the truth with my mouth and I may intellectually believe the truth in my head, when I sin, I am admitting to God and to the world and to all of the angelic realm, to anybody who watches, that really I do not trust and believe that what God has said is true. So unbelief is the most wicked of sins. Unbelievers, we are all born into this world as as unbelievers, and we are all born into this world hostile against God. Unbelief is not simply apathy. It's not a lack of information or lack of evidence and somebody who's sort of remaining apathetic, undecided in the middle. There are believers and there are unbelievers. There's no middle ground, and unbelief is not the middle ground. Unbelievers are not waiting to be convinced. Unbelievers are in rebellion. And unbelief is a wicked sin because unbelief says that God is not trustworthy and he's not reliable. In our worship uh, time as a family, we've been going through the book of Hebrews now for, I don't know, probably at least as long as we've been going through John. Uh, going through the book of Hebrews, we're in chapter 11 right now, which is the faith chapter. And one of the things that we're seeing as a family is that faith is nothing more or less than taking God at his word. That's all faith is. It's simply believing that, it, that what God says is true is actually true. And it's not just believing that what God says is true is true, but it's believing that what God says is true is true and then arranging my entire life and my conduct around that truth, to comport with that truth. That's what faith is. That's why Abraham was a man of faith when he, when God revealed to him what was true and Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees to pursue a city whose maker and foundation was built by God, a city and a nation that he would never see and descendants that he would never see. Abraham believed that what God said is true and he acted and lived in accordance with that belief. Faith is not a blind leap into a dark chasm. Faith is not denying evidence. It's not denying science. It's not denying truth in order to have some mystical experience or some sentimental notion in the heart. That's how most people think of faith today. But faith is not that. Faith is believing that what God has said is true is actually true. And it is taking God at His word. Unbelief is the opposite of that. Unbelief says... I don't believe that what God says is true is actually true. Unbelief says I am in a better position to determine what is true than God is. And so I will act and I will live my life according to what I say is true and what I determine to be true. Unbelief says God is not trustworthy. His word is not reliable. What he says is true is not. That God will not fulfill and keep his promises. And unbelief says I will not obey that God and submit my life to that God and line my life up with what he says to be true. That's what unbelief is. Now, it is a wicked sin for this reason. Can you imagine a more horrific thing to say about the omnipotent God of truth than to affirm by your conduct, by your life, by your unbelief, or by your sin that he is not true, 
that he is not trustworthy and that he is not reliable. That is exactly what unbelief does. It affirms something of God which is a slight against his character, an attack upon his nature, an attack upon his reputation. It is me affirming by my life and my trust that he is not true, he is not trustworthy, and he is not reliable. Every act of sin, no matter how small or no matter how great, deserves to be hated by us because it is, in essence, this. It is us affirming by our conduct that we do not believe that what God has said is true is actually true. Unbelief is the most wicked and heinous of sins because it affirms something about God that is utterly untrue of Him. It says about God that He is not reliable and that He is not worthy of my confidence and my trust. So we come back to the subject of belief and unbelief in John chapter 6. Belief and believing and unbelieving is the theme of the Gospel of John, one of the major themes. Not only is it the deity of Christ, but it is also this theme of believing and unbelieving what God says is true. And in John chapter 6, we, we have now come, by the time we get to verse 47, which is where we pick it up today, we have come full circle in a sense. We started off with verse 26, this bread of life discourse, with Jesus and the subject of manna and food and the feeding in the wilderness and the bread of life. And so we started on that theme, and now we have kind of, after discussing the sovereignty of God in salvation, the Father giving a people to the Son, the Son securing and saving those people, and the Father drawing those people to the Son that they would have life and securing them and raising them up on the last day. Now Jesus, in verse 47, returns to what he started with in verse 26. And everything in between, by the way, all the talk about the sovereignty of God, it fits into this because the theme of the whole chapter is that Jesus is the bread of life. So he begins with the subject of the bread of life. He ends with the subject of the bread of life. And it is all of that salvation that's spoken of in the middle, the Father giving the people to the Son, all of that hinges upon us understanding that he is the bread of life. How is it that we are saved? We are saved because he is the bread of life. So the theme and the discourse is the bread of life. And now in verse 47, Jesus returns to this theme of belief and unbelief. And one thing we've seen in John, and I will say this again because we've said it a hundred times, unbelief is never due to a lack of evidence. It is due to a what? A love for darkness. Always. No unbeliever is an unbeliever because they remain unconvinced by the evidence. They are always convinced by the evidence. Creation is enough evidence. What they stand on every day, what they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, every day is evidence that there is a creator. They remain in unbelief, not because of the lack of the preponderance of evidence, but because they love darkness. They have a moral iniquity, a moral love for darkness, which is irrational and it's unexcusable. It's utterly unjustifiable to love darkness, and to reject the truth. So that is belief and unbelief in John chapter 6. Now we dive in at verse 47, and we're going to see now Jesus returning. Remember, he's talking to an unbelieving crowd, to Pharisees in the synagogue at Capernaum. Verse 59 says that. So he's speaking to Jewish leaders in the synagogue. These people are in unbelief. Verse 36 tells us that they had seen him, and yet they remain unbelievers. They do not believe. They would not believe. And now he is going to graciously offer them salvation again, and we are going to see Jesus teach on the teach about the basis on which that salvation is offered. And we're going to cover verses 47 through 51. And I know in contrast to recent weeks, that's going to seem like we've covered way too much Scripture. But we're going to cover verses 47 to 51. Read it with me. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, 
is my flesh. The first thing I want you to notice in verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I want you to notice that that is both a gracious offer and it is a precious promise. It is a gracious offer to those who are standing there who did not believe. Remember, this is a group of unbelievers. Jesus has just told them that he will offer to them, verse 35 and 36, the bread of life. Because he is the bread of life, he who eats of him or he who receives him or believes upon him whom the Father has sent will receive eternal life. Now in verse 47, he's saying again, truly, truly, I say to you, if you will believe on me, you will have eternal life. You will live. This is a group of people who did not have eternal life. These are lost people and unbelievers. And furthermore, these are people whom Jesus knew did not want to believe upon him. And this is a group of people whom Jesus knew offended him by their very desires. Do you remember back earlier in the chapter? What was it that they came to him for? It was the signs and what else? Free food. They saw him multiply the bread and fish on the other side of the lake earlier the previous day. And now they have come to him, they've sought him out, they found him in the synagogue at Capernaum, and back in verses 26 and following, what was it that they were asking him for? More food. They wanted more food. They sought him out the next day because the bellies that had been full the previous day were now empty. These are people who were seeking him for all the wrong reasons, and Jesus knew their hearts, and he knew they did not want him, they wanted what he offered. They wanted his benefits. They wanted anything but him. They did not want the bread of life. They wanted physical bread. They wanted him to satisfy their cravings, their desires, and they're even wicked desires, but they did not want to receive Him. And yet He offers them eternal life and says to them, If you will believe, you will receive eternal life. And these are the people who rejected Him. Now this offer of salvation, this offer of eternal life, is not, and can I say this often enough or too strongly enough, it is not in any way incompatible with what we have learned about the sovereignty of God and salvation from verses 37 through 45. We affirm that God is sovereign in salvation, that the Father has given to the people a Son, and the Son has received those people. He will raise those people up. He will lose none of them. The Father will draw all whom He has given to the Son. He will draw them to the Son so that they would behold the Son and believe on the Son and receive eternal life and that the Son may raise them up and present them all back to the Father. That is all the work of the triune God for His own glory. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working in salvation to redeem a people, His people whom He knew and loved before the foundation of the world. We affirm all of that. And at the same time, the very same time, we affirm that any and all who come to the Son will receive eternal life, and that offer of salvation and the proclamation of salvation and the gracious provision of salvation is made available to all men indiscriminately. You never limit it. And we are in no way contradicting ourselves when we affirm both of these, that God is sovereign in salvation and that the proclamation of the gospel must go out to every creature, every man, always, And the offer of the gospel goes out to all people. Come and take of the living water and you will never thirst again. Come and eat of the bread of life and you will never hunger again. Come and receive Christ, the bread of life, and He will give you eternal life. If you will believe, you will receive eternal life. Those two things do not contradict. If they did, then Jesus is schizophrenic in the passage. They're not contradictory. He has affirmed both of these. He has said to these people, This is what the Father has done to secure the salvation of a group of people. And at the same time, He is saying to them, anyone who believes upon Me will receive eternal life. If there ever comes a point in your life where in your theology you say to yourself, because I believe in the sovereignty of God, I must limit my proclamation of the gospel. I'm not going to preach the gospel. Then you have just embarked down a road where you have perverted truth, 
you have twisted Scripture, and you have distorted the gospel of Christ. Your theology can never bring you from one point of saying, I, from the point of affirming these doctrines to saying, I therefore will not preach the gospel, or I'm not going to be concerned about the lost. That is a, that is a wicked, wicked sin. And Jesus affirms both of those things, that God is sovereign, and this is a gracious offer to these men who opposed him, just like he did in John 5. Do you remember John 5, the Pharisees, over the issue of the Sabbath? And what did he say to them? If you will believe, I will save you. If you will trust me, if you will rely upon me, if you will believe on the one whom the Father has sent, you'll receive eternal life. Gracious offer. It's also a precious promise to us as believers, is it not? To know that by virtue and through the faith that God has given to us, by virtue of the faith in the Son of God, we possess currently eternal life. That eternal life is not something that we are waiting to receive. It's not something God rewards us with at the end of our life if we have been obedient and faithful. It is something we possess as a current possession. It is mine right now. The life that I have right now in Christ, I will have forever. It is eternal. It can never be taken from me because, as we've seen in John chapter 6, the Son has promised to secure me all the way to the end and to not lose me. So the life that I have is eternal life. And I have the Son's promise that I will never lose it. And that He will never take it from me. And that He will never lose me. It's my current, present possession. You and I, if you have come to Christ, you are not waiting to receive eternal life. You have it right now. You have it right now because you have taken the bread of life and you have received life and that life will never, ever end. That is His promise to you. There is nothing that can happen that can separate you from that love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Nothing in this life and nothing in the life to come. You have the precious promise of eternal life. Notice also from verse 47 how simple the whole thing is. The one who believes. I mean, really, could there be anything more simple than that? In one sense, it's the most simple thing in the world. In the other sense, it's the most impossible thing in the world. It is so simple in this sense that God does not ask of us any great work. He doesn't say if you climb to the top of Mount Everest or if you lead X number of people to Christ or if you keep all of the law or you match all of the standards or if you obey this or if you do all of these things or you accumulate certain acts of righteousness. He doesn't ask to just... It's this simple. Believe what is true. That's all faith is, right? It's belief in what is true. It affirms, it's just saying, I believe that what is true is actually true and I'm going to live my life in accordance with it. Is there anything more simple than believing what is true? Does anybody here find it complicated to believe that 2 plus 2 is 4? Did anybody really wrestle with that? Do you wrestle with that this morning when you woke up? Any of you wrestle with that? Any of you wrestle with the law of gravity this morning, wondering how this could be true and wondering if it's true and not living your life in accordance with the law of gravity? All faith is, is believing that what God says is true is actually true. It's just saying, I'm going to believe the truth. Could anything be more simple than that? And yet, is it not a testament to our fallenness and our depravity and our hopeless wickedness that we are unable to do the simplest of things? We are unable to come to Him because we do not want to come to Him and we do not want to affirm that what is true is actually true. It could be, nothing could be more simple than the way of salvation. And yet, because of our fallenness, nothing is more impossible than the way of salvation. That is the conundrum of fallen men. It is so simple. Don't you walk down the street sometimes and wonder, why do people not believe? Why is it I can explain the gospel to my coworkers and my family members and my friends and my children and my, my spouse and the people that I meet on the street, and yet they do not get it. They do not receive it. They do not believe it. How can, how can they not get it? Nothing is more simple, and yet nothing is more impossible because of our fallenness. It's a very simple, simple message. 
Now in verses 48 and 49, Jesus returns back to the theme of manna and the bread of life. Look at verse 48. I am the bread of life. That may sound familiar to you, because we saw it back in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now he is affirming it again. I am the bread of life. And he's picking up again the subject of manna and the bread of life that he began this discourse with back in verse 26. The people had seen the signs. They had seen the multiplying of the bread and fish. They came to him because they wanted their bellies filled. And Jesus uses the bread as an analogy to communicate to them what the purpose and point of the whole miracle was to begin with. The miracle of him multiplying bread and fish to feed 20,000 people, 5,000 men plus women and children, that miracle was not intended to simply fill hungry stomachs. That miracle was intended to say something about Jesus himself. What was the miracle intended to say about Jesus himself? It was intended to say that he is the one who is the source of the provision for all of the needs that they would need to have met. Now, Jesus in verse uh, uh, 48 and 49 is not talking about a literal physical bread. He is talking about himself being the spiritual bread of life. So when he says in verse 48, I am the bread of life, he is returning back to this offer to them that if they would come to him, they would find their hunger for for salvation and for forgiveness and for life forever satisfied, and they would never hunger or thirst again. That's the promise of verse 35, that he is the provision of all God's people. And what they should have learned from the miracle the previous day was that Jesus Christ was not only the one who made manna in the wilderness, but he, and not only the one who made bread and fish for them in the wilderness, but that he was, in human flesh, the God who provided for his people in the wilderness in Moses' day. They should have seen in him, he's our provider. They should have looked at him and said, he just multiplied bread and fish. He is the one who can and will and must meet all of our needs. He is the great Jehovah Jireh, the provider of all my spiritual and physical needs. That's what they should have seen of him. But all they saw in him was a free source of bread, free meal. They saw another handout, and that's what they wanted, and that's all the further it went for them. But they didn't want him for who he was. They wanted him for what he could offer them. So when he says to them, I am the bread of life, he is returning back to that point, and then there is a contrast, a contrast in verse 50. Or sorry, verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. Now this is the contrast. The contrast is that those who ate the manna in the wilderness died. And Jesus is referring back to the generation that ate the manna that was provided every day after the children of Israel came out of Egypt across the Red Sea and went into the wilderness. But notice one little thing that kind of skips, you skip over it in your reading because you don't notice it right away. Notice the phrase, your fathers. Now they were Jews, right? The generation that ate the manna in the wilderness, they were Jews. Jesus refers to the Jews of the generation of Moses as your fathers. Jesus was a Jew too, right? So why didn't he say our fathers? Why didn't he say our fathers? Why didn't he include himself with this group? That is a very subtle way of Jesus distancing himself from this crowd of unbelievers and saying to this crowd of unbelievers, you are just like the generation of Moses' day that ate the manna in the wilderness and died. Let me ask you a question. The generation that followed Moses out of Egypt into the wilderness, were they a faithful, believing generation of people or were they an unfaithful, unbelieving generation of people? They were an unfaithful, unbelieving generation of people. What made them unfaithful and unbelieving? Do you remember the evidence of it? What had they done? They had seen God raise up a deliverer. They had seen all of the plagues in the land of Egypt, all ten of those plagues. 
They had seen the Passover event and God deliver his people from Egypt. They had plundered the Egyptians, went across the desert, hit the Red Sea. They saw Pharaoh's army in pursuit. They saw God open up the sea and they walked through, all million and a half or more of them, on dry land to the other side. They came out the other side. They watched God drown the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. Then on the other side of that, they saw God provide water out of a rock and manna and quail and all of those miraculous provisions that they needed, the entire nation needed. And did they believe? When God said to them, I will give you the land. Go in and spy it out. I will give you the land. The land is yours. I'm going to give it to you. I will go before you. I will conquer your enemies. I will destroy them. I will bring you in and give to you a land flowing with milk and honey, which I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the generation. This is the time I'm offering it to you. I will give it to you. Just follow me and obey me. Did they do it? After seeing all those miracles, what did they do? Three people, Moses, Caleb, and and, uh, Joshua. Moses, Caleb, and Joshua. Three people believed and believed that what God said was true was actually true. And what did the rest of the nation do? Nope. Did you bring us out in the desert to kill us? We'd rather stay in Egypt and eat the leeks and the melons and all the good stuff, the onions back there. You brought us out here, why, to kill us? There's not enough graves in Egypt, all that sarcasm and the unbelief. And what did God do? Because they heard his word, but it was united with faith, and they did not believe, and they did not trust that what God said was actually true. It was true. He destroyed them in the wilderness. He wiped them out and judged them for their unbelief and destroyed an entire generation of Israelites because they were unbelieving. Now, does that generation of people remind you of anybody else? Those in John chapter 6, they had seen the miracles, they had heard him teaching, they saw God in human flesh doing miracles in their midst. They had eaten from his hand all that he had provided for them. They had watched this, they had seen it, and yet did they believe? No, verse 36 says, Jesus, Jesus said, You have seen me, and yet you do not believe. The same thing could be said of that generation in the wilderness. They saw the hand of God, and yet remained unbelieving. That is why Jesus says, your fathers. Those people are just like you. You are just like they were. That's what he says to them. I mean, I'm not pointing my finger at you people. I'm illustrating what Jesus said. You are just like that generation. They ate the man in the wilderness and died. And here's the parallel. You have seen the signs just like they saw the signs and remained in unbelief. You have seen the signs and you remain in unbelief. And you have eaten what I have provided from my hand for you. And yet you remain unbelieving. It's your fathers, not our fathers. Jesus didn't have anything in common with this group of people. That is a very slight, subtle, but straightforward way of pointing out the parallels between this group of people in John 6 and the generation that ate the manna in the wilderness. And Jesus said they ate the manna and they died. See, the manna was never intended to give them life eternal. It was never intended to provide eternal life and to make them live forever. It just was a physical food to met a physical need that lasted only for a short period of time. What Jesus is offering, by contrast, is not physical food but spiritual food, which means not a physical need but a spiritual need and doesn't just last a short period of time but lasts forever. And by drawing attention to the manna in the wilderness, he is reminding them of what he had said earlier when he said to them, uh, when, when, sorry, what, He's reminding them of what they had said to him earlier when they wanted a sign. And he had said to them, this is the work of God, verse 29, that you believe on the one whom the Father has sent. And what did they say? Give us a sign that we would believe. Do something that puts you on par with Moses. Not a one-time provision for 20,000 people, but a continuous provision for a whole nation. That's what they wanted, remaining in their unbelief. And yet Jesus says in verse 49, your fathers ate that man in the wilderness and they died. Now, in contrast to that manna, here's what Jesus provides. Verse 50, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it 
and not die. What type of not dying is Jesus speaking of? Is it physical not dying? It can't be, right? Because that wouldn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. We all know that we are born to die, right? From the very moment that you started to live, you started to die. You realize that? You don't start to die when you're 40 or 45 or 50 or 65 or even 90. You start to die from the moment of your conception. And the minute you step upon the path that's known as life, you, it's the path of death. The minute you begin life, you begin to die. All of us die. All of us are going to die physically. But it's not physical death that Jesus is speaking of. It's spiritual death. He has promised eternal life to those who would believe in him and be raised up on the last day. He is speaking in terms not just of physical life and death, but he is speaking in terms of spiritual life and death, which results in being raised up on the last day. So the life that he is promising or the not dying that he is promising is not suffering eternal death for sin. For a believer, death is not dying. To die is not death. What is death to you and I if you place your faith in Christ? What does death mean to you? Does it mean separation from God? Not at all. It means instant enjoyment in the presence of God for all of eternity. It doesn't mean that you cease to exist. It doesn't mean that you go to a holding tank called purgatory. It doesn't mean that you even go into sleep until the last day. It means when you pass from this life to the next, you instantly go with no pause whatsoever from, from one realm of existence to another. And so for a believer, it is not death to die. It's life to die. It's spiritual life and eternal life. It is to receive everything that has been promised to us. It is to step immediately into the presence of Christ and to enjoy all of the glories and bliss of His presence. That is what death means to you and I. But not to an unbeliever. To an unbeliever, death is dying. And to die is death. Not ceasing existence, but to enter into a state of continued and perpetual and eternal spiritual death and suffering and affliction in the presence of God for their sin but not for the believer. For the believer, we get eternal life. So the death being spoken of in verse 50 is not a physical death. He is promising us, you will never die. You will never suffer the effects of physical death or spiritual death ever. That's a promise. And once again, it is an ironclad promise and it is one secured by the Son. And I would point out again, the idea or the notion that you can lose your salvation is utterly incompatible with what's taught in this passage. You cannot. You cannot. This is the Son's promise. If you have believed upon Him and placed your faith in Him, you will never die. You cannot believe that you can lose your salvation and make any sense out of this entire passage whatsoever. In verse 51, what is the basis upon which Jesus can offer us salvation and eternal life? How is He able to, how is He able to offer this to us? How is it that He is going to provide life for these people that He has promised life to if they will come to Him? Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I want you to notice two things in verse 51. First, notice, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Notice, first of all, that the one who eats of the bread, whatever that means, lives forever. He who eats of the bread lives forever. Second, you notice that the bread which Jesus is offering is his flesh. He says that at the end of verse 51. The bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now we're going to take both of those. I'm actually going to jump to the second one. We're going to skip the first one for this week. And here's why. The first part of that statement, that he who eats of the bread, whatever that means, has eternal life. He lives. So in your mind, you need to connect the eating of the bread with eternal life. We're going to file that away till probably next week. I doubt if we'll get, I doubt if we'll skip it till the week after, but probably next week. We're going to deal with this issue of what does it mean 
to eat the flesh of the Son of Man. Because you see that there's confusion on it in verse 52. The Jews who, under, who listened to him say this in verse 51. They began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So they didn't get it either. So the eating of the flesh, or the eating of the bread, brings eternal life. And here's the connection you need to make for this week. All who eat receive eternal life. Now file that away in the back of your mind, and let's jump down to the second one. The second statement, the, the bread that he would give for the life of the world is his flesh. What is it that Jesus provides for the life of the world? It is his flesh. What is it that provides life for every tongue and tribe and kindred and people and nation on the face of the planet? What is it that has provided the life that he gives to all who will believe in him? It is his giving of his flesh. Because the bread that he is going to give, which brings life, is his flesh. Now there are two, predominantly two, ways of interpreting these words at the end of verse 51. I'm going to give you both of them. There is obviously a big divide between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism on how you read and understand everything in John chapter 6. So let me give you the Roman Catholic view of John 6. When a Roman Catholic reads everything in John 6, here is what they see. The Mass. They see communion. They see transubstantiation. They see the bread and the wine becoming literally the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And that those who eat of that body and blood receive eternal life. So the communion becomes a means of grace by which life or grace is imparted to the believer and salvation comes to the believer. So they, they read John chapter 6 and they don't see, as we would see it, they don't see a discussion on belief and unbelief and salvation, the results and horrors of unbelief. They see Jesus instituting the Mass. And they would remember 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul says, or where Paul quotes Jesus and said, this is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. They would remember the Gospels where Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you do in remembrance of me. They would see all of this in John 6 as a reference to communion or the Mass and the salvation that comes by partaking of it. Furthermore, they would see this sort of encouraged or their interpretation sort of buttressed, uh, built up a little bit in verse 53 where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, he also eats me, he will also live because of me. So see, they say here a reference to Jesus instituting communion. A couple main problems with this, and we're going to dive into it more next week. As we look at, we're going to contrast the Roman Catholic view of communion with the Protestant view of communion. One of the problems with the Roman Catholic view of the passage is that it, it totally does away with the context. Um, for one, all who eat of the bread receive eternal life. Right? We already made that connection. Does that mean then, from a Roman Catholic's perspective, that one who eats communion receives eternal life and all that's necessary for receiving eternal life is eating communion? A Roman Catholic wouldn't say that, and rightly so. But yet they would hold, partially, that that is necessary for salvation to participate in that at some point in time and in some way. So the Roman Catholic view says that all that Jesus is speaking here of is the institution of the Mass and of communion. But the language is not the language of communion, it is the language of sacrifice. In a very crass, not quite crass, but in a very stark and straightforward and blunt way, Jesus is saying, I am going to offer my body as a sacrifice. So is Jesus describing here in John 6 communion, the Mass, 
Or is Jesus describing in John 6 his death on the cross? Is it communion or is it the cross? We would say it is the cross. That what he is describing is the life that would come to his people will come because he is going to offer his body as a sacrifice on an altar, which would be the cross. And that by means of that sacrifice and that shedding of blood, that breaking of that body, the Lamb of God would purchase the, uh, purchase a people for himself. Now we have to point it out because it states it in verse 33. It also states it in verse 51, this reference to the world. Look at verse 33. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 51 says, And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What does John mean here by world? Does he mean all people without distinction or without exception, I mean? Does he mean all people without exception, that everybody in the world who has ever lived receives life because of what Christ did? Are we universalists who believe that none will perish, but all get life because of Christ's sacrifice? Is that what he is describing? It can't be, because John, in the context, makes clear that there are some who will perish. By life of the world and for the world and living and dying for the world, Jesus does not mean that he is going to save all people or that all people get salvation because of what he did, because not all people do. He is referring, as John has done all through his gospel, to the fact that the death of Christ is not just for the Jews. It is for all peoples, so that any and all who will come can come. And God is called out of all peoples from all over the world, a people to himself, from every tribe and kindred and tongue and nation. It is not every man without exception who receives life. It is all types of men without distinction that are able to receive life because of what God has done particularly in view in John 6, is the death that Christ died for those whom the Father gave to Him. Remember the context. The people that the Father gave to the Son, where were they from? All over the world. Every tribe and kindred and nation and people. It wasn't the Jews only. Jesus said, I have more sheep that are not of this fold. I will gather them in and I will save them as well. Why did He come? came to pay the sin debt and the price for all and any who will believe. People from all over the world, millions upon millions, an innumerable multitude. That is why he came, to seek and to save that which was lost and to give his life as a ransom for many. Are you thinking in terms of Christmas yet? Yeah, I hope so. Why did he come? Was Christmas and the coming of the Son of Man and his death on the cross, was that plan B, plan C, plan D? Was it God trying to desperately fix something that went wrong? It wasn't. Acts 4 says it was the predetermined plan of God, the predestined and predetermined plan of God to offer His Son on a cross to save any and all who will believe, to hang upon Him all my sin and your sin, if you have believed, to hang that upon the Son and to punish it there so that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Christmas was not plan B. Christmas was plan A. That was what God intended to do. That was what the Son said He would do. Remember, the Father gave people to the Son, and the Son said, I will save them. I will secure them. I will lose none of them. And the life that I will give to them will be purchased because I will give my flesh in their place. So if you have eaten of the bread of life, then you have eternal life, and you will never perish. And if you have not eaten of the bread of life, then you do not have eternal life, and you are on a path to perishing. And the only way to remedy that is to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and trust in the Son who has promised to save you, to secure you, and to sanctify you forever. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that your word is true and that you are true and reliable and that we can trust you, that we can come to you, that we can place our confidence in you, 
And we pray, O oh God, that you would help us to see in our own lives those areas where we do not believe and we do not act in accordance with our belief. We pray that you would take what is in our heads and translate that to our hearts so that we might walk and live in obedience to you and that the knowledge and the faith that we have may not be merely an intellectual faith which is unable to save, but that we may, by an act of obedience and by our entire lives, cast our confidence on the Son. Thank you that he has promised to save all who will come to him and thank you that his death is not for the Jews only, but also for the whole world. And that we as Gentiles have been included into that saving plan. Thank you for atoning for our sin. Thank you for making salvation so simple that it is just belief. And we thank you that you have made us able by your grace and drawing to participate in such a simple salvation plan. It is a precious salvation and we thank you for it in the name of the one who purchased, us, purchased it for us. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.